Hi, I'm Connor Byrne, and this is That's What I Call Marketing, the podcast where you'll hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique insights. Well, today I am joined by one of those marketers where the introduction to her honors and accolades is almost never ending. She's one of this country's finest marketers who has, since graduating college, made New York City her home. She's been acclaimed as the unofficial ambassador of Ireland, been honoured by many Irish organisations, including Douglas Hyde's Foundation, Irish Voice Women of Influence, and top 100 Irish Americans in business in the United States. When it comes to marketing, she is equally honoured, noted as a LinkedIn top voice in marketing. The Drum B2B Marketer of the Year is a Marketing Society Fellow, has been published in Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Forbes, and more. Wow. Well, today I am joined directly from New York City by Margaret Malloy. We recorded this interview shortly before Margaret announced she is set to leave Siegel and Gale to take on a new venture after being CMO there for a decade. Ironically, Margaret jokes with me throughout the podcast about some of my questioning being as tough as a job interview. I'm wondering, would she get the role? I wonder, was it on her mind when we spoke? Anyway, it will make sense when you listen. Let me know what you think. We chopped through so much Margaret's Irish upbringing, her career journey. We talk about the importance of curiosity. She brings it up, not me, I promise. Continual learning. Margaret elaborates on the ethos of simplicity in branding, characterized by the intersection of clarity and surprise. We discuss the significance of brands delivering on their promises and the challenges of ensuring consistent, user-friendly experience across multiple touch points. We also dive into the evolving perceptions of Gen Z towards branding and social media, as well as the shifting roles and aspirations of marketing leaders. We also managed to get into Margaret's passion for Irish fashion through her Wearing Irish initiative, and indeed she is wearing Irish today from designer Helen McLinden. We talk about poetry, art, her advocacy for celebrating Irish creative talent on a global scale in what is a truly enlightening chat. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe and rate wherever you are listening or watching. Not only so you never miss an episode of That's What I Call Marketing ever again, but also helps us reach a new audience and continue to build a community of great, passionate marketers. And if you want to reach an engaged community of marketers, well, you may be interested in partnering with the show or sponsoring some of our episodes. If you do, get in touch, visit that'swhaticallmarketing.com and visit our sponsorship page. Margaret, thanks a million for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing. It's fantastic to have you here. Connor, it's an absolute treat. I'm an avid listener, so delighted to get a chance to be on the mic with you. Brilliant. Well, listen, I, there's so much to try to get through uh, in the time we have together. Um, but I got to start with, you know, there's things that you've talked about in the past, you know, particularly your, your upbringing in, in Ireland, being the, the eldest of six on a dairy farm, you know, in, you know, being the first to kind of go to university and college. And I was just curious, as you reflect on, on that time, was there, I, I think as being the eldest, was there any kind of pressure did you feel to kind of achieve those things and to give you that ambition and drive to to get to where you are today? Gosh, Connor, you're not giving me any easy questions to get started. You're really, let's dig right in. Um, so um, was there pressure? Look, growing up in Ireland in the era, era when I grew up, there was economic pressure. Yeah. Um, the economy wasn't great. And we were all very focused on getting skills that were highly marketable in the workplace. So certainly there's that aspect of practical pressure. There is also the aspect, certainly growing up in the household that I did, of representing your family well. Right. In every arena, whether that was in the school setting or in your community, this idea that you are a representation of your family. You're an ambassador. So having good values behaving with integrity, having good manners. Those were, above all else, the things that we were under pressure. And I'm sure many of your uh, listeners and viewers can relate to that. Yeah. I think the third thing, if there was pressure, I put it on myself, arguably, but it was to take advantage of the resources that I had that my parents and their generation often did mm -hmm. not. And for me, that primary resource was access to quality, free education. 
So that's where I leaned in, Connor. Yeah, it's uh, and, you know, it's, it, it is it's interesting. I think some of those values still exist, you know, definitely exist in Ireland. I mean, I think, you know, like even the manners thing, right? I'm like, when my kids go to someone's house, I just want them to have good manners, you know? And that was thing that, you know, my parents, you know, wanted for me. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. It kind of, it's so much has changed, but there's a lot of similarities, I think, between, you know, that time and now, which is nice. I think you're right. And I think um, in the end of the day, you and I find ourselves in roles where we're in marketing or adjacent to marketing or in my case, branding. And isn't it all about reputation, really and truly? Although our parents may not have had that vocabulary from that discipline, this idea that what is a brand at the human level, but what people say about you when you're not in the room, as Jeff Bezos is wont to uh, cite. So I think there is both good humanity in that um, preference that our parents have, but also just sound business sense as well. Yeah, the very, very true. The other thing I was interested uh, um, in reading and hearing about was you had an interest in ads when you were young. I, you mentioned things like, I think, Fairy Liquid or Benetton, which was probably quite controversial. Yes. Well, yes, I loved ads because I suppose my enthusiasm for commerce and I saw ads as the storytelling part of commerce but gosh ads show up in different places and I remember as a child we got our first television when I was nine years old yeah and in I think I may have told you this before Connor and it was when the Pope came to Ireland so you can do the math and figure out the age and we got it for the um very simple reason that my parents wanted to give my grandparents the opportunity to experience Pope John yeah. Paul's visit. And for us as children, well, that was interesting. We started a game of trying to name the ad between the commercial breaks in Ireland. Brilliant. And that was for us so much fun. And it focused me to be attentive to what is the early perceptions you have of brands and the jingles and the language. And who knows, maybe subconsciously that contributed to my career yeah. today. In terms of Benetton, those ads showed up in the magazines and I loved and still do um, fashion magazines and if you will, the lifestyle category. And what was remarkable to me growing up in Ireland was less about the controversy in the ads and more about what we now call representation yeah, yeah, yeah. of different experiences. And that was something I did not have access to. Yeah. So it made me very curious. And there was the beauty. I love color. I still do in, in um, dress and in every setting, but also just different lived experiences all coming together, creating these gorgeous collages, which essentially were their ads. And I was less focused on the controversy and more the beauty. Yeah, and they were, I mean, they were, they were, they were amazing pieces of art in so many ways. And, I, you know, I think they used artists often, you know, particularly, you know, photographers and, you know, really famous people to, to create the work. A slight interesting, complete tangent on the Pope's visit. My parents and my aunt and uncle had, the, all of us and our cousins were all together and they did a draw to see which parent was going to have to stay home to mind the kids while the others went to see the Pope. <laughs> and where did we go? Was it Galway or no, Dublin? Dublin or? the Phoenix Park when there was a million people. I mean, gosh, it was, uh, but you know, I, I still remember my dad got the short straw and I still remember us being at home with him watching it on the, on the telly. It's, you know, it's, uh, yeah. not that, well, there you go. We had a, a shared experience. Experience around uh, the Pope. And, yeah. And was it the, you know, I guess the draw to the US, was it kind of not directly from the Benetton ads, but kind of that that idea of things that you weren't exposed to and different experiences? Was that, was that what drew you to, to head to the USA back then? Well, frankly, it wasn't my choice. It was the job I got out of college. Right. So I went to the University of Ulster at Coleraine. I studied business studies in Spanish and the... Um, representation of the Irish government. It was called Chorus Troctola at the time. Yeah. I'm also an Irish speaker and it's now known as Enterprise Ireland. They recruited graduates 
to travel the four corners of the earth to represent Ireland in promoting the wares of the country. And they, in their wisdom, decided to invite me to go to the New York office. Wow. And I was delighted. Great sense of adventure. Yeah, you said, wow, that was exactly my reaction. And I applaud the recruiters there in that aspect of matchmaking. They identified something in me that would have suggested that the U.S. was a good fit. And they were so right. So I joined Enterprise Ireland as a grad, a one-year program, and I never returned. Never returned to working in Ireland, returned to the values, of course, and promoting all things Irish, but it was the right place for me. And again, it's extraordinary the power that recruiters have in those first jobs and how they can be so foundational in our career journeys. Yeah. Do do you ever think back and wonder, like, what that was that, that you think they saw in you about that, the U.S. connection? Great question, Connor. I haven't thought about it, but as we think about it now, I think they saw my curiosity about other people and my ability to create connection. And then practically, because it's business, my work ethic around following up and keeping in touch. Yeah. Because the Enterprise Ireland rule is about promoting Ireland's products and services. So it's back to those reputational qualities of our youth. You're representing the country, representing the brand. And they identified my capacity to do that and be a good ambassador, but also the diligence around doing the follow-up and doing the hard work. And I think they were right. And those are all Qualities that are great for someone who spends their time doing sales and marketing yeah. every day. Yeah, it's um, it, it's very, it, it's just a very interesting kind of moment, as you say, in in your career. And you know, who knows what what else could have happened? But did it help then? Because you've worked, you worked with um, am I right in saying you worked at other Irish companies from the US and like tele was it Telecom Air? And did I get? Am I right in saying that? You're exactly right, Connor. Good research. Yeah. I um. I worked for Enterprise Ireland for a year, and then I was privileged to be invited by Aircom to work in economic development, essentially. This was during the 90s, the Celtic Tiger era, and I was promoting the country of Ireland as an ideal location for call centers and back office operations in deep collaboration with IDA Ireland, the Department of Foreign Affairs, and all the other entities that comprised Ireland Inc. at the time. That was a glorious job because I really believed in the product, Connor. Right. The product was Irish people on the phones doing customer service. And intrinsically, I knew that they had the ability to deliver. And it was a promise I was very comfortable making. And I was a very naive, enthusiastic young woman going to trade shows and speaking about the merits of Ireland for economic development and learned in the process a love of technology and an appreciation for telecoms infrastructure. That stood me well. So that was, yeah, that was, gosh, five or six years of representing really? Ireland before ultimately I went to graduate school. And isn't it wonderful when you have a really good product? Like any marketer is like, you know, when the product's good and strong, like it just helps, doesn't it? Like it makes things easier. I think so, Connor. And also the product has to be intrinsically strong in terms of its quality, but also it has to connect with you on a deep level. And that's when the magic yeah. happens. There are lots of wonderful products on markets in different categories, but if we don't have passion for it, Savvy buyers, customers know that. And certainly I had passion for the offering. And also the offering needs to continue to evolve, to be relevant. And as I look now at Ireland as a destination for foreign direct investment, that product has evolved markedly yeah. in terms of the education system and indeed the entire infrastructure and ecosystem of Ireland for foreign direct investment but also for indigenous industry. It's, it's quite extraordinary to see it. Yeah, it, it's like it's wonderful to kind of be in it as well and see both the companies coming in and, you know, availing of the incredible talent here, but then 
the knock-on effect of those kind of small and medium enterprises. Someone was telling me about a, a headphone business out in the west of Ireland. I was like, wow, they are phenomenal. So yeah, it's, it's amazing to see those stories. And you went on from those roles. Obviously, you went, back, you went kind of into grad school, but then into your other kind of roles, your marketing roles, I guess, Siebel Systems, uh, Gerson Lee, Lerman, Lerman Group, I might pronounce that wrong, Velocity. I'd love to just kind of pick into maybe some of the learnings that you took through some of those different roles that you had, because it's kind of a, a very interesting progression of your career. Um, what were some of the big things you, you took away from those organizations? Wow, it's an interesting line of questioning, Connor. I think, I hope I get the job after the interview. Um, but I appreciate the question because that's, it's a smarter question than what did you do? Sequentially, the question of what did you learn from that? So now that I've bought myself a few minutes to think about it. Um, brilliant. Look, we talked about the early career. What I learned in that was mission. I need to work for an organization that has a mission beyond product. It's mission that I subscribe to and get behind. Um, after graduate school, I worked for Siebel Systems, the CRM company, and I could get behind that mission. Customer centricity, customer relationship management, the idea of having a single view of the customer at every touch point, whether it's the call center, the online experience, or in-store. My greatest takeaway from my six years or so at Siebel was the importance of a commercial mindset. Right. At Siebel Systems, everything was in the service of sales. And that was a central focus that led itself to core values. One of my favorite values at Siebel Systems was a bias for action. Mm. So at the end of every meeting, we would conclude, okay, what are we going to do? What's the action? And how will it advance our commercial agenda with sales? So that was very powerful. That is powerful. I, yeah. And I think me coming from a more government-oriented background, that was a helpful addition to my portfolio. Yeah. Then when I went to Gerson Lerman Group, it's essentially an expert network. And that product is about connecting people who have expertise with entities who needed them, often for short-form, hour-long consultations. I was the first marketer there. I built the marketing organization. So I learned to build from the ground up. I also learned about qualities like customer service. It was a very customer-centric organization. And the customers were very demanding. They were often research analysts at investment banks or some of the top-tier consultancies. So clarity around what is the promise we're making to these professionals mm -hmm and making sure we get that right. So customer service. So I went from appreciating sales to understanding customers. Then when I went to Velocity for a number of years, I learned about the digital channels and social media. Right. And the importance of trying to make sure that the experiences someone had in person could be replicated with digital technology, websites, and all of those channels. I also learned that digital is vital, but it's not the only channel and the importance of having a portfolio approach for businesses. And for the last decade where I find myself today, I've been at, at, at um, Siegel and Gale. And at Siegel and Gale, we're part of the Omnicom network. It's a branding firm. Mm -hmm. And I learn, of course, many aspects of branding. I lead all of the marketing new business and sales functions globally. So many functional learnings there around how to lead a team, how to be an effective business development and marketing person in different cultures, how to do branding, which is the core of what we offer. But the most important lesson of all, Connor, ties to our ethos, which is around the importance of simplicity. Mm -hmm. We believe Great brand experiences are simple experiences. And for me, you know, we've been talking about learning. Frankly, and quite honestly, if we're in the interview for the job board, my, my deficit coming into to Siebel, to Siegel and Gale rather, was I was really good at nuance. Okay. I was really good at complexity. 
business school teaches you complexity. I had lots of jargon and great vocabulary. I had to unlearn, unlearn a little of that to get to the importance of simplicity. And now I've come to the realization that simplicity is such a higher form of experience. I'm a deep student, mm. as I mentioned at the very beginning, and I study processes, theories, whatever it is, very deeply in order to be able to explain them simply. So you get beyond the jargon to get to simplicity. It's a higher order appreciation. And that's what I've learned. And it's a very enduring, and it's difficult, mm -hmm. but it's a very enduring and powerful lesson. It, I, do you know, I was going to ask you, you know, what were some of the things that you, you maybe changed or, or, or views that you changed, but so you've, you've almost kind of gone in there about, about simplicity. And actually, I want to talk a bit more about simplicity because simplicity is complex in a, in a way, right? To get to simplicity is not easy, which is probably why a lot of us don't do simplicity and we do complexity in our marketing and our messaging and our communications. We try, say, a thousand things, you know, in, in 30 seconds quite often. Um, so let's talk a bit about simplicity and, and I guess from your perspective, the importance of it and why it is so important. And then we might get into some kind of how people go about getting to simplicity, but we'll start about the importance of it from your perspective. So let's define it first. Essentially, simplicity from our vantage point is this gorgeous intersection of clarity and surprise. Okay. Now, clarity, if you do clarity on its own, it has the risk of just being dull and very expected. Okay. You don't want that. You want this little element of joy, of delight, of elegance. This aha moment as a consumer, when you interact with a brand to say, that's exactly what I would have wanted, but I would never have thought of it. So simplicity in branding occurs when you have both clarity and surprise. Now, if we unpack it, which is essentially what your question mm -hmm. is inviting, there are many dimensions to simplicity, Connor. One is clarity. We've touched on that. Consistency across touch points and across communications. Um, beauty. Okay. Using design yeah. to create experiences that are beautiful. And utility. That's one that people very often forget. Simple experiences often are useful. Mm -hmm. And that's a really good question to ask yourself. You mentioned the tendency to throw everything at it. Yeah. Well, asking yourself, is that useful? Really powerful filtering mechanism. And another very important aspect of simplicity is transparency. Transparency manifests in so many ways, whether it's the fees that we are charged in our commercial interactions with brands, or when we can see where the package is in the shipping process, yeah. all of those qualities create simplicity. And I think, you know, the, the question around why bother is also interesting. I would submit, Connor, that all of us as people and as consumers, right now, we're cognitively challenged. Yeah. There is so much stimulation, as you and I said in the beginning of this call, there's so much going on. Yeah. We have a lot to do. We have a lot of channels. We have many priorities that we're navigating across our personal and professional lives. So the brands that deliver simplicity, as I've defined it, are being rewarded. From a business standpoint, there are essentially three reasons why we say simplicity pays. And the first one is consumers are willing to pay more for simpler experiences. Isn't that interesting? And they've shown Isn't this time and yeah. time again. So interesting. It's the reduction of this angst. Yeah. Because when you have simplicity, Connor, what does it give you? It gives you confidence mm -hmm. that you've made the right decision. And that's a very gratifying emotion for a person to have, a customer, a client, etc. The other metric that's also interesting, and in ways when you think about intuitive, customers are more willing to recommend a brand when they've had a simpler experience. And we know the importance and the commercial value of referrals. 
And the third metric speaks to a very different audience, and that is the investor community. Okay. Take the top performing brands, put them into essentially a basket of stocks, and compare their performance across the stock market indices. And year upon year, the brands that perform best in the Simplicity Index have outplaced the stock markets, which is to say the capital markets reward Simplicity as well. So lots of good commercial rationale for Simplicity, as well as just the doing right thing by your customer. And so that begs the question, we've touched on it, it's complex to get there, but why are more brands not aiming for simplicity as kind of a, almost even a core value that they have? What's the barriers? Number of barriers. One you identified, it's difficult. It requires making choices. It requires having a point of view and the conviction to instigate it across your entire organization. Specifically on that point, it requires leadership support. Mm -hmm. It has to be done from the top down, as it were. When we work with clients, we think about simplicity as defining their promise and then how they deliver on that promise. Now, invariably, that involves cross-departmental collaboration and alignment. And often, marketing, branding, what have you, is relegated to the communications department Mm -hmm. or the marketing department. Whereas we take a very expansive view of branding and what that means. Another very expected explanation for complexity is that it can be the byproduct of growth. As companies grow, whether it's growing their product portfolio, growing their staff, growing their geographies, Inevitably, complexity comes in and you have to be constantly vigilant to uh, eliminate that complexity because you perceive it to run counter to some of your other business goals. But in truth, it can be so clarifying to have a clear purpose, that customer centricity and aiming for questions like, how are we useful to our customers at every touch point? I think from my experience decades now, talking to CMOs and CEOs, part of the reason is that companies often go to market based on how they are organized internally. Mm -hmm. So we have XYZ product division, ABC services division, and we create our products and services and we represent them on the websites as a mirror image of our internal organizational framework. When in truth, that's not how companies, uh, how we buy as consumers, either B2B context or in B2C. So often it requires that outside looking in vantage point and companies have politics and companies have priorities that often, although they say they are very customer centric, they don't often organize that way So we find ourselves, for example, doing a lot of work streams around product and brand architecture. And architecture is that term of art that describes how products and how brands are organized to be more reflective of how people buy. And it's just really interesting because we all talk about the consumer and the consumer at the center of everything. But, you know, we, as you allude to, we do a pretty terrible job. As you were talking there, I was kind of thinking, you know, and you said it has to come from the leadership and the CEO, but where does simplicity sit? I I mean, you know, should there be a chief simplicity officer in every, you know, organization that is charged with, you know, breaking down the complexity or or where do you find that it fits, even though it's cross-functional, that's, if there's no owner, it doesn't happen. Well, Yeah, that's super interesting. The whole metaphor for our conversation is the job interview. (laughs) So, you know, maybe that's the job we sign up for, Connor. I want that job. But why? But do I? Because, yeah, philosophically, it's a good job in that the mission's very real. The impact is huge, if done well, as our data suggests. In my conversations, I will toggle between suggesting it's the CEO's job and the CMO's job. Right. Because the chief walking officer, 
when interpreted expansively, represents the voice of the customer. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's important. The chief marketing officer also is charged with translating business strategy to brand strategy and customer experience. So therefore, interpreted appropriately in enlightened organizations, it's under the rubric of marketing or brand, if you will. So I think what's less important, although we joke about it, is who has the title. Right. What's more interesting is how do you infuse that ethos across the entire organization? That's the opportunity. And if you can imagine a context where everyone from the colleagues creating the products to the colleagues at the front line in retail or customer service, to even the colleagues who are dealing with customer billing, which is often an unheralded but very important customer yeah, touch yeah. point. If everyone is aspiring to simplicity, you will get there more consistently than if it's relegated to any one departmental function. And I add to Connor, the companies that embrace simplicity for their employees, in their employee experience, from recruiting, to onboarding, to exiting, to their rewards and their incentives, to creating clarity around everything from the benefits to IT support in their organizations. The companies that have essentially simple employee experiences are the best set up to deliver simple customer experiences. That That is a fascinating, fascinating insight. If you can, you know, make that a simple process for people. Um, and I do love the idea of everyone owning it. As you were saying that, I actually was screwing it down because if it's a filter that you can have in an organization that everyone has, which is like, is this simplifying things for the consumer? Then that's a great question to have. And it, you know, you know, you can probably do things immediately, or there's other things you might need to bring to a collective team and kind of go, here's a way we can try and make this a simpler experience. Um, I think that's a, a wonderful filter for people to to start thinking about. One of the things you, you touched on there as well was the expansive view of brand and branding. And I think it's very interesting because I I, I think often a lot of people, when they hear the word brand, they get it immediately in their head, okay, this is CMO and they're going to make a TV ad. But brand is everything in the organization. I'd love to get your kind of view on that expansive view of branding and how you address that. Yes, and it, it comes back to what we said in the beginning. Brand is essentially a promise delivered. And the promise is the communications component of it and the brand strategy and the articulation of what you stand for. And then the delivery is how your stakeholders, I like to think in terms of your customers, of course, your employees, your investors, the community, how they all experience you, yeah. the entity, the brand. Or if you think in, in math terms, it's the summation of every touch point every stakeholder has with your organization. And I like to say multiplied by the story you tell. Yeah. Because the narrative that you put in market is there, is that consistent with the experience? And in so many situations, marketing is way out ahead of the customer experience. Yeah. And it's okay to be a little out of, out ahead because marketing is aspirational after all. But when customers are disappointed, it's often because there is dissonance between what we're positioning ourselves to be and how they are experiencing us. There are brands in the luxury category that we can all learn from, fashion and beauty, for example. And they are, have loyal customers. Mm -hmm. And it's not because of affordability. It's because the promise they're making matches the experience. Meanwhile, there are very mass market brands that are very affordable, who are very bare bones and maybe inelegant in their experience. And they also do very well. And they share the common notion that there's, there's synchronicity between the promise and how we are perceiving them and the experience. 
And that's making the point that this idea of having a great brand transcends business model. It's not just about luxury or not just about mass market. Every brand has to do that introspection and say, what do we stand for? And back to the simplicity. I have a brilliant colleague who says, often clients come to us and they have not a brand, but 17 ideas on a page. And our job is to help them with data, with storytelling, to get to a place where they can have one idea, something they stand for, and then bring it to life in the customer experience. Yeah, and I th- that the customer experience as the you know the the way of living, touching, feeling the brand is is so real, and we all have examples of where that goes terribly, terribly wrong. And you know, I I often think about the example many years ago when Zappos, who had the really wonderful customer care of re- returning, and they did these brilliant ads about real customer phone calls. Where people were like, I'm I'm not emotionally ready. They'd arrived a day before. And they're like, okay, send it back and then we'll send it back out to you the day it is ready. But that to me was always a great example of a brand that had their customer care team where the front line of what that brand meant. And at the time that brand was all about great, you know, quality of service delivery. Again, I don't know where it's at now, but I always stick out sticks out for me as a really good example of of the brand living through everything. It's a glorious example, Connor. And I had the privilege of talking to, for an interview, um, uh, Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos, an extraordinary individual. And what he shared was essentially this notion of empowerment. The customer associates on the phone had the power to make those decisions. So they were very empowered because often our frontline employees have deep knowledge. Yes. They know what the customer wants. Sometimes the systems, the protocols, preclude them from the ability to actually deliver. Yeah. And they had these wonderful processes that he shared with me. It's some years ago now. The idea that if you come to work here and it doesn't work out, we'll pay your salary for a period of time and you can move on. So all kinds of institutional processes and protocols that stood behind the promise that the customer service agent is empowered to deliver what the customer wants. And often customers, brands are misguided because they are so focused and understandably on cost reduction. Yes. How can we create very streamlined scripts in our call center? How can we Focus on reduced call times. That's a classic call center network. And but that can be often unenlightened because even when you and I have a bad experience and we call our bank and we have a conversation and the agent resolves our issue, that in that moment, they've created a very loyal, happy customer. Even one who arguably is more loyal more likely to say positive things than someone who had no issue. Mm -hmm. So this mindset, a lot of what I think about Connor is mindset. The mindset that if you're simplifying and if you're making the customer happy, that actually can be a positive, profitable component as opposed to get people off the phones as quick as you can. And there's such interesting opportunity now with what's happening with AI to get that right. And what I mean by that, Connor, is not defaulting to let's have the chat box who are fast and efficient and have been trained on large language models figure it out, but rather let's have the chat bots or the AI technology empower the humans to be smart. And I'm super interested and curious going forward to see how the impact of AI could positively impact customer experience or how brands could totally over-rotate on digital and miss the whole point of having a brand, which is an emotional connection with some. That balance is really important, isn't it? You know, I'm often, you know, I kind of want to know I'm speaking to a human, but I want it to be fast as well. So I've been selfish. I want best of both worlds. I want it to be speedy and 
But, you know, there's definitely a place for the quick and easy answer that AI will get get you or, or kind of chatbots. But but then you need to be able to get to the person as well. And And there's simple things, I think, on kind of just that experience of even knowing that I'm 11th in the queue and this call might take 20 minutes to answer, then I'm okay. Like it's the psychology of that is fascinating. Is It's just like, you know, give me the guidance on what is happening and then I can make a decision if this is too long for me to wait or I'm happy to wait. But it's, then it becomes my decision. I have less frustration over the, the not knowing and this could be for hours. It's interesting. That's a beautiful example of one of the principles we spoke about earlier around transparency. Yes. So yes. that's a good yeah. use of transparency because it's giving you back control. Yeah. And, um, and I think that the trick is getting the transparency right. So sometimes you will see over-communication. <laughs> so the classic cell phone bill where there's too much transparency. Billing is super interesting. We are having a conversation about branding, Connor, and we're talking about probably the most, in some eyes, boring, unheralded customer touch points one can imagine. So I don't know where this conversation is taking us there, but actually, maybe it's taking us to a place where companies can differentiate. So you look at the bills we get, a cell phone bill or an insurance statement in our policies, or heaven forbid, when we're trying to sign up for benefits, when we join a new company. Well, there's an example of sometimes where transparency has gone all wrong. We're getting too much detail and not enough clarity. Yes. Yeah. Well, this idea of balance, I think you're on to something. And it's not balance in the spirit of often what happens when people attempt at simplicity, they get very reductive and they throw things out and eliminate steps. No, it's much smarter than that. The opportunity is to boil things down to what matters to customers, using the right channels, using the right language, using words, using design to create these human experiences. And the genius of the simplifiers is the ability to strip away what doesn't matter and leave that which provides value. So although we're talking about unheralded touch points, the recognition that they matter and how they're handled, therein is the beauty and the opportunity for a brand to be distinctive. Yeah. And, you know, I, yeah, I just, I, I find that kind of just fascinating. And I know we've gone down into a very kind of specific area, but, you know, when you think then of, of the brands that are doing simplicity well, one thing I'm, I, I'm thinking about is that they probably often have, have to evolve the simplicity, right? It's not just a once and done. And you talked about kind of consistency. I'm sure there's kind of moments of consistently reviewing the simplicity to make sure it's still fit for purpose. That's right. Some brands do well consistently in the top 10. Brands like Google and Amazon are paragons yeah. of simplicity. And we've seen others. Um, fall out of favor because of inability to keep up with customer trends and customer demands. So it's definitely, as I mentioned, the requirement to constantly be vigilant and keep current with how people are communicating and want to be communicated with. So another useful area to study is if we look outside our own category, so say, for example, you're insurance or you're in quick serve restaurants, to look to other categories is very powerful because our, as consumers, expectations of brands are not just formed by our experience in your category. They are informed by our last great customer experience. Yeah. And that is true in both B2C brands, but also in business to business. And this is something that I feel is often neglected. Some companies will say, well, we sell to business people. That's a whole different conversation, Margaret. We're doing complex sales. Appreciate your simplicity point. That's wonderful in my day job. But in, 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 in the reality of my work, that um, is not valid. And then I point out a couple of things and say, well, look, B2B decisions are always mission critical. Mm -hmm. 
when you're purchasing that large technology system, that can be a career advancing or a career mitigating yes, decision. Yeah, yeah. So high stakes purchase, um, increasingly business models in B2B require are subscription based. So require us to continue to engage with the brand. So it's not just in the customer experience in terms of the buying transaction component, but the product has to be simple in our delivery mm -hmm. because it's so easy to switch to an alternative. Yes. And also there's a generational component. Many of the buyers in B2B today grew up with the internet. They grew up with Amazon. So their standard of good branding, good customer experience, good communications are set by their standards as consumers as well. So all of this discussion we've been having implicitly is about business to consumer brands. But I would say it applies oh, yeah. even more in B2B companies. Yes, I, I completely agree with you there. And I think we do, we can often do a, a terrible job on the B2B side of just really overcomplicating things and just using language that kind of is company focused. It's about you and your product and not about speaking to a consumer. You know, I was looking at something today and I was looking at, you know, a, a demo of a product and I was like, I really don't understand it. And then I found something else that somebody else did about the product. And I was like, oh, I get it now because it was using simple language. And maybe this is a perfect episode for me because I'm so into simplicity. I'm such a simple being, Margaret. Uh, you mentioned uh, different generations. And I know you've done sessions with uh, Gen Z. Your own, your own son was on a panel. Uh, I'd love to hear about that because I know to me it, it, it ties into your uh, innate curiosity and, and continuation of, of always wanting to learn, which you've, you've talked about. Can you tell me about those panels and what you're learning from them? Certainly. So you're right. I'm very curious. And for me, bringing curiosity to life means creating settings where I can learn from other people at its heart. So for the last number of years in various settings, sometimes digital, most recently at Advertising Week here in New York City, I convene a panel of chief marketing officers and their children who are Gen Z. And the most recent one I did had four brand leaders and their four children. And the normal format is I moderate the panel. That's what I do. Well, for the Gen Z panels, I pass the mic. And I passed the mic to one of my sons and invited him to interview his peers, the children or Gen Z yeah. colleagues. And then the parents just stayed quiet. And then the parents come back at the end and my son Emmett passes the mic back to me and I ask the CMOs for their reactions. And what's extraordinary about that experience is how rarely it's done. And yet the simplicity of the idea. So we often speculate about populations on any yeah. demographic. Yeah, yeah. Gen Z being this case, rather than just going directly to the population and asking them. So the simplicity of the idea. The second point is the passing the mic allowed me to park my biases and my questions and let a Gen Z talk among each other and listening to them. Huge part of curiosity, like market research, requires listening. So you set the context and then you listen. So learned many things, challenged many assumptions. For example, we all think Gen Z, or many of us think, I should say, spend all their time in the digital world yes. and that they are naive to TikTok and the messages that are coming their way. Well, the Gen Z panel acknowledged that they spend time on social media, but they also explained how they do significant research before purchasing products. They look deep into the values of companies. There was one um, Gen Z female on the panel who spoke about makeup and how she was really interested, but she looked to brands that were inclusive. She also looked at the ingredients to make sure the ingredients were strong ingredients and the impact on the environment. Right. And she spoke deeply about how she didn't just do this through TikTok, but she talked to friends and family. 
the fact that these young people seek input intergenerationally from grandparents was really interesting. The fact that they love to walk around the mall, as we say in America, and that they observe outdoor advertising. Interesting. uh, May surprise some people. And also, I think the biggest learning of all, certainly from me, from listening to this generation, is how they think from a gender standpoint, much more fluidly. They're less inclined to think that marketing should be targeted at people who identify as female or or people who identify as male. And they don't like this boxing. Well, that's a girl's product or that's targeted at boys. So that was really interesting. And one of the summation comments I think uh, my son made when he was doing his synthesis was this idea that brands often focus on gender more than the buyers do in their generation. And they are too direct in targeting and they make assumptions that are gendered that are not always true in terms of how young men and young women buy products or perceive brands. I thought that was really, really interesting. That, that is fascinating. And and again, it's not something you're going to you're going to get without speaking to the people who are living the experience. What you know, whatever that is. I think that's so important that as marketers, we continue to to do that and find ways to, as you say, be curious and speak to people and have those experiences. Um, can I ask a question just because you touched on social media and that they're kind of, but they like being out, they like being out, out and about. Did, did it come up at all? You know, are they concerned at all about their use of social media? They are very aware of themselves and their brands, as it were. Right, okay. So they are very thoughtful. They may not have this vocabulary, but they're very thoughtful about personal branding. What they post on social media, what they like, and in fact, whether they post. Right. And the frequency of their posting and what that says about them. Um, They are aware that they should limit Mm -hmm. their time on social media, but they acknowledge that it's a challenge and it can be very seductive. Yeah. They are aware of the pitfalls, but they are still find it very alluring and very captivating. Yeah. But I think they are not naive from the brand. So there's a distinction between, I suppose, the mental health awareness yes. and consequence of social media, which is not my expertise, but they're aware of that. The distinction between that and how brands engage with them, which was the focus of our discussion. And they are not as naive, I think, as brands may think. They are way more sophisticated and they verify more and they they ask better questions, I think, than perhaps we do at that stage in our lives. And possibly have, you know, the advantage of some of this is they have more places to go and, you know, figure stuff out and, you know, uh, and it's, you know, as you said, great, they're, they're talking to, you know, people their own age and, and other ages. Um, I want to then just kind of touch on, you know, I guess your role as, as CMO, we haven't really talked about, about that so much. <laughs> what is, I mean, what's the day to day like for you as a, as a CMO? I get to spend time with CMOs of other brands. And I do so from the perspective of convening them in panels, in webinars, at conferences, because it speaks to my core of curiosity. It's very authentic. I also learn a tremendous amount. We talked earlier about my personal enthusiasm for learning. I have the perch whereby I get to have direct access to leaders running some of the world's best brands. And that is just an extraordinary learning opportunity. I'm also deeply interested in inclusion. Mm -hmm. We touched on the Gen Z panel. I've also convened marketers from across different lived experiences. A very renowned International Women's Day program. I've been running that for almost a decade. I've done programming for Pride, Black History Month, Hispanic Heritage, AAPI. And the reason for all of that is because it's the power of brands and inclusive storytelling Mm -hmm. and brands' ability to impact culture 
and influence our perceptions of different people and different experiences. Yeah, you you touched on something there that I, I think is important that the, the power brands have in the world. You know, I think the brands can have the power to do great things and positive things. And, you know, I, I think often there's not negativity, but I, I, I think it's a wonderful thing just to say, I, I hear that and I think it's a really, really important point to make. And so, so glad you touched on it. Um, you talked about challenges. What do you see are some of the challenges uh, in 24 for marketing leaders? I believe the challenges in 24 for marketing leaders all center around what you described as balance earlier mm-hmm. and what I might characterize as tension. So how they navigate their growth goals. They have very real growth agenda. They have investors, they have capital markets that are demanding growth and other goals that other stakeholders have that may not be aligned with that. Employees want brands to do good things in the world. The community wants brands to step up, whether it's around the environment or around planet or around creating environments of belonging. So there's that tension in brand purpose. How can I deliver on growth goals and at the same time make the world a better place? Big challenge. Another challenge is around navigating hybrid work environments. It's very real in the marketing context because so much of marketing, I believe, happens when people are together and having those serendipitous moments to, to bound, to create creativity. So how do you navigate a world of hybrid work and building culture and creating uh, a culture that's positive and has forward momentum and creates loyalty on the part of employees. Marketers are also navigating their own career aspirations. We mentioned when you and I began in our careers, the conversation around then for marketers was, how does marketing get a seat at the table? Yeah, yeah. The big boys and girls table. You know, the finance folks and the operations folks. Well, I believe over the course of my career, marketers have that seat now. However, they're looking for a seat at the boardroom table. Yes. So I think that's going to happen in 24. More and more marketers, be it at their own companies first, but also at other companies, will be invited to contribute at the boards. And I think that's a very exciting movement because back to what we said throughout the conversation, if marketing represents the voice of the customer, then the CMO is just a great contributor to a board. A hundred percent. I had a wonderful guest on uh, last year, Sherilyn Shackle from the Marketing Academy. And like, that's her mission. Her mission is more CMOs on, on the board. And um, Margaret, we're, we're nearly at time. And I have one last question. I actually, I'm not going to ask you to do this, but I did hear you on, a, on another podcast um, recite poetry. And I have I'm not, I said, I'm not going to ask you to do this, but it was amazing. I was actually in my car and I was enthralled by your delivery. And the, I w- it actually, I, I was transposed away from the, the journey I was on to, to your recital of that poetry. So honestly, remarkable. So obviously poetry and, you know, that is, is a huge thing. What other things do you do to to relax and and we said there's a lot on always a lot on how do you what's the downtime for margaret so you're right i love theater i love listening to podcasts including yours so i just love getting myself access to different experiences out of category outside marketing because that's how you learn that's how you build connections and you bring that freshness back to your job i love going to museums being exposed to physical beauty as well. I've also been very active in the fashion world. I invite everyone to check out hashtag wearing Irish on Instagram and on the website. I wear only Irish designers of clothing and jewelry. And recently I've started very modestly collecting art by Irish artists. So I'm very interested in beauty in all its manifestations. I think Ireland has a wealth of talent in the creative arts and they've gotten wonderful exposure in the performing arts. And I'd love to see that same reputation attached to um, the creative arts in terms of fashion 
painting, sculpture as well. Amazing. Well, Margaret, thank you so much for spending so much time with me today. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was so looking forward to this and it's been wonderful speaking to you. Thank you so much. Well, it's my pleasure. And I have to ask, did I get the job? Because ah. I felt like I was at a job interview or will you get back to me on that one, Connor? Uh, well, Margaret, we're seeing other people. and <laughs> I appreciate we that, Connor. The uh, candidate black hole where you never hear back from us. Okay. I, I appreciate that. It's been an absolute treat, Connor. The very best and keep up the great work on your wonderful podcast. Thank you so much. Well, what do you think? Does Margaret get the job? I do think it is funny how she picked that up in my line of questioning. I, I definitely wonder what's interviewing on her mind when we spoke. Who knows? What I do know is Margaret is an incredible force. And I mean that in the most positive way. She has an electric energy passion and honestly I, I think she has a brain that just operates on a different level she was so generous with her depth of answers i love how she was able to reflect on things she learned through previous roles and what she had to unlearn i think that is a real skill and at the level margaret is operating at have the humility to unlearn is incredible and i suspect margaret constantly looks to learn to unlearn Margaret was on a long list of guests I hope to get on this podcast, so it was wonderful to get to chat to her at this juncture on her journey. And I'm sure we're going to catch up again and see where her journey has taken her. That is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening or watching. Please do share, like, subscribe and rate the show. It really helps us find and reach a new audience. And if you'd like to partner with us on That's What I Call Marketing, visit That's What I Call Marketing.com and see how we can.